Hi, good afternoon. On behalf of the Boston Bar Association Civil Rights Steering Committee and the Massachusetts Black Women Attorneys, I want to welcome you today. I am privileged to be your host and your moderator today, uh, Tara Dunn. And um, all I can say is that you guys are in for an absolute treat. We're going to be talking about the newly passed Massachusetts Crown Act, Crown standing for creating a respectful and open world of natural hair. And uh, we have a phenomenal panel today, made up of phenomenal women. And I wish we had all day to talk about their bios, but I'm just gonna provide a brief snippet um, up for each. We have here Representative China Tyler, who serves the seventh Suffolk County. And as a Roxbury native, her work is focused on policies impacting low income and working class people Additionally, she has sponsored and co-sponsored a number of anti-racism and DEI legislation to include her support for the Massachusetts' very own Crown Act. And next we have attorney Deirdre Hausler. She serves as the general counsel, general counsel for Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, where she provides in-house counsel and manages the legal division. The MCAD is currently tasked by the new Crown Act to adopt rules, regulations, and formulate policies with regard to the Crown Act. And next we have Patricia Oconta. Patricia serves as assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. At the LDF, she works on a variety of racial justice issues across the country, including legal and legislation legislative advocacy, challenging grooming policies that target Black people for wearing their natural hair. And Patricia has provided guidance um, and discrimination provisions, guidance on previous hair discrimination provisions passed by New York City and offered written testimony to Wisconsin and has also litigated Crown Act cases. And next, last but absolutely not least, we have Shreer Bryant, who has co-founded the company Just Work with Kim Scott, New York's best time, best-selling author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and Just Work, How to Root Out Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Build a Kick-Ass Culture of inclusive, Inclusivity. And Trier has also been featured as a DEI practitioner by several publications and outlets to include Forbes, CNN, we could go on. Um, Trier is currently the president of A2VS Venture Studio of Alloy, Alloy Therapeutic, which is based here in Waltham, Massachusetts. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So my first question is for you, Representative Tyler. Um, why don't you bring our audience up to speed on what this Crown Act is? Why are we making such a big deal about hair? Yeah, so good afternoon, everyone. And again, I'm really grateful to be here. And I want to say hello to all the amazing uh, co-panelists here. Um, so the Crown Act um, finally passed, but there is a big backstory to it. And I'll try to condense it into 60 seconds as much as possible to allow for other folks to add on to it. So um, unfortunately, um, when folks go into the workplace or their place of business, their school, whatever institution they generally come across to be able to make money for their family, um, 
there is an issue when it comes to culture being accepted in those spaces. Uh, but particularly with communities of color, our hair is a way we not only express ourselves, but it sometimes can be used to be able to protect our hair, to be able to ensure that we can express ourselves. Um, our hair is pretty much our identity. It's who we are. It's a part of our body. It's literally a part of our body, a part of our head. Um, and no one should be legislating in or trying to dictate what that should look like at any given time. Um, when it came, when it comes to natural hair, which is the big end on the bottom of the Crown Act, um, we noticed that a lot of folks, particularly with natural hair, didn't feel comfortable in their workplaces, uh, whether that be wearing their hair in braids um, or Afro or whatever type of style folks can come up with that actually wear natural hair, um, locks, what have you. They were some of the most folks um, experiencing difficulty in the workplace. And so we wanted to make sure that um, we are promoting inclusive workplaces, particularly when it comes to your personal identity. And, and we did what we could to be able to solve that issue. And so now you have the Crown Act, where we do have a little bit more work to do, but we're very grateful to be able to uh, pass that bill. Um, legislatively, that kicked off. There were two young women that were high school students at the time um, here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that experienced some difficulty in wearing their hair in box braids, which is a very popular style for many women out there in the community. My daughter wears box braids. It's probably the most convenient hairstyle that I personally know how to do as a parent. Um, and they were reprimanded for just expressing themselves through their hair and no parent should ever have to go through that, particularly no child should ever have to have that experience in the academic setting where we want to support our students. And so that's what kind of kicked off the actual legislation of the Crown Act. Um, and we had to file it twice because there was some difficulties, but ultimately it did get passed and we're very grateful for the collaborative effort. Thank you, Representative Tyler. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the in some of the inspiration for this act um, regarding the two twins. Um, and Patricia, you were involved in that case. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? I was gonna say Representative Tyler and her colleagues have been doing some tremendous work for several years. Um, the two twins that she mentioned, Maya and Deanna Cook, were two 15-year-old black students at Mystic Valley Regional Charter School. They wore their hair in box braids with extensions, um, which was prohibited by the school, and they were completely barred from extracurricular activities and punished for wearing their hair in this fashion. And this was in 2017. So um, Representative Tyler has been working on this for, for quite some time. Um, and so LVF was lead counsel along with a, a host of other civil rights organizations um, to represent the Cook family and really urge the school to change its hair policy and show both the cultural significance of wearing your natural hair, whether that be in protective styles like braids, bantu knots, or in its natural state, afros, locks, those sorts of things. Um, and with pressure from parents, local advocates, as well as media attention um, brought by LDF, the school's board of trustees actually lifted the ban and allowed um, the Cook sisters to attend school, but also expanded that to, um, you know, write off those punishments that were received by other students to resume all extracurricular activities as well. So um, this is really a long time coming in Massachusetts, as well as in other states and on the federal level of really pushing against grooming codes and policies that restrict Black people from being comfortable in their natural state, um, whether it's in the educational environment or in the employment circumstance as well. Thank you for that. And, you know, we, we can talk about this from a, um, a technical standpoint as attorneys and as professionals, but I, I'm interested to hear what you personally think the significance of passing 
of legislation like this. And I want to turn this question to Trier, who uh, does DEI work, and talk a little bit about whether you want to share your personal experiences or, or what be. But, but what is the significance of having legislation like this? Yeah, Tara, it's quite significant, you know, and it's unfortunate that, you know, we still have so much work to do to get this passed at the federal level. And right now it's only passed the 17 states. And then there's 40 cities that actually have um, legislation on this. But we need these policies, unfortunately, because we know, and probably a lot of us from our own personal experiences, this is an issue in the workplace and also in schools for students, particularly, you know, our children. So, and like, you know, Tara and I, we went to the Air Force Academy together. We served together. We've had conversations about the policies of hair that were very clearly targeting Black women and their hairstyles, not only at the academic level, at the academies, the service academies, but also at an institutional level at the Air Force, Army, Navy level. Um, and so it's it's quite um, irresponsible, disrespectful uh, and, un, and uncalled for. Um, I remember there was a the the only black woman officer at the time, uh, General Harris. She would intentionally take her official Air Force picture with her cornrows so that we could actually point to that and say, actually, this is within regulation. And the only black woman general wears her hair in this way. And she every time when it was time for her to take her new photo, she did that so that we had something in our arsenal to use when people would come and note that policy. You know, studies also show that black women are 30% more likely to be talked to and told to about workplace appearance policies. So we know there's targeting here and it's quite frankly, just prejudice. So how we define the difference between bias and prejudice is that bias is not meaning it. It's unintentional, it's unconscious, but prejudice is meaning it and it's double down on it. It's going to black women and saying that hair is unprofessional 30% more of the time than other women in the workplace. Thank you for that. Um, and Representative Tyler, you spent a lot of time working on this issue, uh, both you and uh, Representative Stephen Oltrino and other advocates uh, in the LACP, but why why is this so personal for you? That's a good question. Um, this is very personal to me because I'm a mom and I grew up um, a young Black girl, just like my daughter. And some of the most memorable times in my childhood or just in growing up was when I had to get my hair done. It could be a very, very great experience, a very stressful one, a very exciting one, but all in the end, beauty is pain. So always exciting and very proud and just very um, uplifted in my spirit in general after seeing how beautiful my hair were turned out getting my hair done as a young girl. And so now uh, fast forward as, a, as an adult raising a young girl who was 11 years old in elementary school. These are some of the times in their lives when they're kind of at that preteen age and even teenagers very sensitive and very uh, subconscious about their body and how they look and their hair is a big part of that. And so if I can, you know, be hands-on in the effort to be able to protect the identity of young Black girls, which is already something that is something very difficult to be able to do, I'm definitely going to be on the front on the front lines, being able to do whatever I can, having my own experience at home. Absolutely, absolutely. And how about you, Patricia? How um, what has this meant for you to be able to engage in policy, helping with policy making, and, and litigate under the Crown Act? Oh, I think you're muted. Yes, you thank you. Um, this is extremely important because hair discrimination is simply race discrimination by another name. Um, it has negative, many negative consequences by, for Black people, including those that affect their economic, educational, physical, and mental well-being and success, as 
most of this, the women on this panel has have stated, we have often encountered scenarios both in our, our, our public and professional lives where our hair has been critiqued or um, criticized. And this really inhibits Black people's mobility and infringes on the right for people to exist as their full selves. Um, so pursuing this sort of advocacy, both on the policy and the litigation front is important to really dispel harmful stereotypes about black people and, and really end this white supremacist myth about what constitute acceptable appearances for black people and employees. Thank you. Um, and, and you mentioned, uh, I think acceptance is the big word here. And Shreer, if I know that you've already hit on this, but if you could just spell this out, you know, why is this a DEI issue and how does this have an impact on recruiting and retention in terms of talent in the workplace, for example? Yeah, it is definitely a diversity, equity and inclusion issue within our organizations, and therefore it needs to be a leadership issue. And leaders and organizations have to understand um, the consequences of when this occurs in their organizations. And unfortunately, there are way too many examples that I can point to of our clients, also in organizations that I have been in. Um, I was in an organization that is known for hiring the best and the brightest talent. And as we were going through a full interview, days of hiring another leader in the organization, the hiring manager for this role was a white woman. And the top candidate of the day was a black woman. And when she came in, she interviewed with her with her natural hair out. It was a beautiful Afro. It was so gorgeous. I was like, girl, I need your hair regimen afterward. That's how amazing it was. It was beautiful. And it was very clear she was a top candidate of the day. And so when we were debriefing as, you know, a, a group does after you're interviewing all day of candidates, um, the hiring manager said, well, we're not going to move forward to offer with the candidate and pushing back on that. You know, I was like, why wouldn't we? She was clearly the, the best candidate after we reviewed the feedback and this white woman. And at the time I was working on Wall Street and I can acknowledge that I did not feel comfortable wearing my natural hair out. And so I have my weave and extensions in. And she said, well, Trier, her hair doesn't look like yours and mine. We can't put her in the front of the business like that. And I was shocked because number one, I had to tell this woman that this is not my hair and my hair doesn't look like yours. My hair actually looks like this woman. Um, but that's how quickly how prejudice can turn into discriminatory behavior because a hiring manager had the power. And so when we have these instances of prejudice and it creates the conditions when we in when we introduce power to create discriminatory behavior. And so that hiring manager then did not move forward to with this candidate. And now we are, you know, this is discrimination. Um, so it happens in our organizations. We have to be aware. We have to understand what's happening. We have to have better training to understand what we're looking for. How did we handle this in the organization and correct this, right? What we did following this after a lot of conversations and me taking myself directly to our chief diversity officer's um, office, who um, was a Puerto Rican Latina who was equally you know, upset and said, we are going to handle this. We instituted protocols and policies that we could not, um, not move forward with an offer to a candidate for something that was not listed in the job description. And so nowhere in this job description did it say a candidate needed to wear their hair a particular way or needed to dress a particular way. And so therefore we could not 
that could not be the reason that we would not move to offer. We did not have the law on our side to lean back on that, to point to that. Um, and so we had to kind of use our own policies and create that change and then also hold people accountable. So this is happening in our organizations and it does impact retention as well, because if that hiring manager thinks that that person wearing their natural hair is not fit to be put in front of the business to make it higher, they're going to take that same belief, prejudice belief into promotion conversations, into conversations about development, into conversations about who's getting which projects and who is getting in front of internal and external clients. Thank you for that. You guys are preaching on this panel. <laughs> I feel every word of this. Um, so I want to kind of jump into, of course, you know, our, our community, we are the legal community. I know there are a lot of people who are wondering uh, what this looks like in the courtroom, in a complaint, uh, you know, employers are probably wondering what they can do to avoid being sued. So I'm going to jump to you, Deirdre. Um, so what, can you tell me, um, you know, as a representative of the MCAD, who is going to continue to take a big role in uh, enforcing the Crown Act, um, what is the legal significance of passing this act um, with regard to discrimination litigation? Thank you, Tara. So um, the legal significance is huge, and I can talk about that outside of the 151B uh, context here in just a second. Um, but in terms of the 151B context and public accommodations and other um, uh, areas of jurisdiction for the MCAD, there was uh, not too much legal significance because it's always been the case, I'm very happy to say, that the MCAD, its investigators, its adjudicators has understood that race discrimination um, can be evidenced by, you know, indicia of race, which can include how you dress, um, you know, what your hair looks like. And that has historically been the case at the MCAD. So, for example, in the example that Chair just gave, um, if that happened in Massachusetts and somebody had come to the MCAD with an employment discrimination claim, um, our investigators would have recognized that that was evidence of race discrimination. Um, in other words, and I mean this in you know the, the most positive possible way, the MCAD and its uh, investigation and adjudication of race discrimination claims didn't need the Crown Act in order to be looking at cases in this manner. Um, so that said, it's certainly a boon to have the definitions added to the general laws um, because they apply equally to the word race as it's used in our statutes and the word race as it's used across the general laws. So, um, so that particularly as the word race is used across the general laws, that's huge significance because um, it's now a matter of law, of black letter law, that if there's a race discrimination claim in other contexts that we don't have anything to do with, um, you know, it's part of the law that uh, race-based characteristics are are to be considered. Um, discrimination against people because of the way that they wear their hair is a form of race discrimination. And that is crystal clear in the law now. And that's a very good thing. And it's a measure of justice for the for the Cook twins as well. And, and that's a great thing. Absolutely, Deirdre. And I'm going to um, ask a few questions to unpack that a little bit. So um, as a litigator, you know, if I'm looking at the MCRA, for example, the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act, and I have a case where, you know, 
there has clearly been hair discrimination, maybe profiling by police or folks that have uh, locks, for example. Do your definitions apply to the MCRA, for example? Or not your personal definitions, but <laughs> yeah. uh, implemented by the Crown Act? Yeah, the short answer is that the addition of a definition for race and for a protective hairstyle in um, Chapter 4, Section 7 applies to every single general law, every statute. So to the extent that there's any prosecution um, or litigation of a race-based uh, charge or claim, that definition is going to apply. So the short answer is yes. Um, the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act is a vehicle for getting um, civil rights violations um, of a number of different statutes in front of the courts. Um, it does have a fairly high bar because it requires threats, intimidation, and coercion. Um, but you know, for example, with 151B, you don't need to you don't need MICRA in order to litigate your 151B claim. Um, and that's similarly true for other statutes. So. And in terms of the definitions, are they also going to impact jury instructions, for example? I mean, I expect, yes. You know, I think jury instructions are within the discretion of the trial judge. Uh, juries need to be properly instructed on the issues and the claims and the state of the law. Those definitions define they're from the law and they need to be applied in those cases where race discrimination is being alleged. Absolutely. And again, as a practitioner, I think that's absolutely amazing because then the jury is actually receiving what the definition of locks are, for example, and in drawing the connection for particular judges. Um, you know, the MCAD has been uh, engaging in this practice for a long time, but, um, you know, that can't be said for, you know, a jury or a judge to understand the connection between natural hair and race discrimination. Um, so I want to give you one more uh, question in terms of application here. Um, so can somebody who is not hired, uh, who is not a part of a protected class, um, but they're not hired because they have green hair, for example, can they seek the protection of the Crown Act? So everybody's part of multiple protected classes. And the answer is, you know, to whatever extent someone's green hair is related to a protected class um, that they're a member of, it could potentially be uh, unlawful discrimination under 151B and 272. I understand your example 100%. If it's just, a, you know, a, for example, um, you know, a, a fashionable like green hair dye that somebody has, and it's there's no nexus to that person's race or national origin or religion, then no, they wouldn't likely be stating a claim under 151B. Um, but part of, you know, the the input that the MCAD has had in the sort of the history of this, this bill moving forward over the past few sessions has been that um, previous iterations of the bill the MCD expressed concerns that it was over-inclusive, to your point, um, that it would provide protective class um, protections where they weren't really the underlying intent of the legislature to be, you know, pro providing protection based on race, national origin, religion, et cetera. Um, and what is great about the, the act that was ultimately passed is that it's much more careful and it's more elegant. It has both like a broader applicability and it doesn't just 
single out a number of statutes in the general laws, but it single it applies to all statutes in the general laws. Um, but it also talks about, you know, hairstyle as a type of trait that can be associated with race, and that would be part of your definition of race in analyzing race discrimination. Um, so the short answer to your question is, it seems unlikely, but it's nevertheless true that so long, you know, any hairstyle um, choice or characteristics about a person's hair could relate to disability, could relate to national origin, could relate to religion, could relate to race. And if there's that connection there, then you might be able to state a claim for, for discrimination under our statutes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, Patricia, I want to turn it over to you. Um, although you have not actually litigated in the state of Massachusetts, you have litigated under uh, respective state Crown Acts. Um, so I want to give you the floor to kind of talk about uh, some of your successes and, and maybe some tips that you could share with folks. Absolutely. Um, and first, just to clarify, we've litigated this under federal law. So Excuse me, no, not a problem. And I, I want to emphasize that to draw this connection on how important this this bill is in Massachusetts. So under federal law, Title VII and Title VI um, of the Civil Rights Act only prohibit employment discrimination and educational discrimination on the basis of color, religion, race, natural origin, and sex. And there are other federal laws based on age, disability, and pregnancy um, um, and a a host of of other protected status. However, appearance is not a protected characteristic. So when we litigate this federally, we have to demonstrate that natural hair or how someone wears their hair is intrinsically related to their race or their protected status, as Deidre mentioned, Um, and that it's a conduit for racial discrimination when one discriminates on the basis of someone's natural hair. Um, The Crown Act in Massachusetts and other states and cities seeks to close the gap of current um, anti-discrimination Um, legislation because appearance is not protected. And it really expands the definition of race in the employment um, and educational settings to ensure that Black people have legal protections from hair discrimination. Um, So although these protections can vary from state to state, it really closed this gap of demonstrating um, that hair, you know, me wearing my hair in box braids, um, the the woman that we spoke to earlier uh, about earlier that wore her natural hair um, in an Afro is intrinsically related to their race and we are under protections because of that. Um, As far as the litigation front, there have been a variety of cases and we're seeing a lot more cases litigated um, on the basis of racial discrimination, also under the First Amendment um, and how um, individuals are allowed to express themselves under the constitution. And one of the, our primary cases that we are litigating now is representing two young men who were essentially expelled from their school that they attended since pre-K for growing out their natural hair and locks. And they'd done, they'd grown their hair for years. Um, They, their hair um, got long as locks grow. Um, It was culturally significant that they did not cut their locks and their school barred them from both attending classes, but also participating in extracurriculars and participating in graduation ceremonies simply because they grew their natural hair and locks. Um, And so we represented these two young men and their parents 
both on the basis of racial discrimination under the 14th Amendment through Title VI, also on under the First Amendment, um, and also for retaliation. Because what we've seen in both the educational and employment context is that when people speak out about um, any sort of discrimination or bias that they, they are facing on the basis of these immutable characteristics, on the basis of their hair, their skin, those sorts of things, um, there are consequences. They are retaliated. They're further punished and targeted. Um, so also including those claims in litigation is important to not only um, really dispel these um, stereotypes that we've discussed about um, natural hair, um, but also to seek recourse for um, any retaliation that was faced by individuals for speaking out against um, this sort of discrimination. Um, and so in August of 2020, um, the, the, a court in the Southern District of Texas granted um, LDF's request to enjoin the school from um, enforcing their policy against one of our clients, which allowed him to return to school and also participate in extracurricular activities. Um, and currently we are, we're preparing for trial in this case and arguing not only that did the school selectively enforce their hair and grooming code against these black students, um, but they also ramped up enforcement when they spoke out about it. Again, talking about that retaliation. And so in states um, or in jurisdictions that don't have the state law crown acts until we get a federal provision in place, which we are advocating for and, and, and are um, really behind a lot of that legislation, um, we'll use the constitution and federal law to, um, to, to really challenge any of these policies that we see that come up um, that target um, black people for wearing their natural hair. Thank you for that. And so, I mean, somebody listening to you right now and, and wanting to do this work, what, what tips do you have for them in building a type of case, this type of case? Absolutely. I think first and foremost is centering your client's experience. Um, we have often personally dealt with these issues, but um, the facts and that are relevant to your client are important important and they're also integral to the case. So really center their experience, listen and learn, not only to what may have happened to them in this particular in, um, instance that you know made them want to contact um, the media or an attorney for advice, but really track this history um, of um, potential discrimination and biases that they have faced because you can sometimes and oftentimes show a pattern of discrimination. Um, I would say also really look into the disparate enforcement of colorblind policies. Um, as we've been discussing through this entire panel, something on its face that appears colorblind often is not. Um, and sometimes changes correlate with how the individuals that they're targeting may change or adjust. So for instance, in, in our case in Texas, our students, as their hair grew long, you know, they pulled it up or back and the, the grooming policy often changed to the length um, or style that our clients wore their hair. Um, and in addition to tracking that, also track other instances of race-based discrimination or biases um, against any defendant, right? It doesn't also have to, always have to relate to hair discrimination to show that there's a history of targeting based on race or color within a, um, a particular area. Um, and then lastly, I would say really rely on experts. You've got incredible experts on this panel um, working in their respective fields. And there are a lot, there's a lot more literature um, 
and expertise available demonstrating the intrinsic link between um, race and hair and, and really utilizing that sort of research, that expertise um, that has been fleshed out to support your claims um, are going to make your, your complaint, um, your case, whenever you appear before a judge, that much stronger. Thank you. And Representative Tyler, I know we only have limited time with you, so I want to get back to you. Um, now that we have this Crown Act in place, what work needs to be done to continue to ensure the success and the progress of this movement? Yeah, so um, actually, Patricia, that was a really great answer. I actually will kind of piggyback my answer, offer her answer to answer this question, um, which was, um, you know, making sure that folks that are representing um, clients in this manner and or anyone who is advocating and speaking up um, has the opportunity to become more culturally competent. Um, there are many different textures of hair. There are many different patterns, many different styles, and some of them are based off of culture. But if you don't know that, you know, said hairstyle is for protective reasons for said particular culture, then you're not going to be aware that 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 type of hairstyle is uh, being um, discriminated against. And so just being a little bit more culturally competent um, and allowing for folks to be able to share their stories and creating space spaces where folks share their stories. Um, hair is a, is a multi-generational you know, gender thing. And um, a lot of times young women face issues around hair discrimination. And if you come from a culture where young women traditionally aren't, you know, supporting and speaking up and stepping up and advocating for themselves, then the last thing that you want to do is to speak up about your hair, which may seem so minute, but it really does matter because it's a part of your identity. And so I would definitely say become more culturally competent and figure out how we can create platforms and create spaces for young girls to be able to support themselves and to be able to advocate for the things that they may be discriminated against amongst their own family and culture. Um, and whatever's like close to them in that community. Absolutely. Um, and represent, uh, Representative Tyler, to continue on that track, I'm going to direct this question to uh, Trier, actually, um, because Rep. Tyler talked about becoming culturally competent. Um, what can an employer do watching this to ensure that their environment is inclusive, et cetera? Yeah, so while we have folks like Representative Tyler and Patricia doing this work to fight, you know, to not only create this legislation, but to also protect folks, as we break down these walls and barriers that allow people to truly come authentically as themselves into the workplace, then that's where we have to start having the conversation of inclusion. And so that's what organizations need to think about. And so what we're seeing is that as we have this continued focus on diversity hiring and making our teams more diverse, what organizations are actually not thinking about is what does that actually mean when we're bringing folks into the organizations? How do we work together? How do we collaborate? How do we communicate? What is our cultural competency to understand that we are sitting across and we are working from people who may be different from us and have different identities and different intersections? And so what does that mean when it comes to hair? Uh, I will give you an example. I was on a team and um, I let everyone know, hey, I wasn't able to get a hair appointment. I was getting my hair braided for the weekend. So I'm going to have to get my hair braided on a Thursday, but I'm going to be taking meetings and like I'll turn my camera off still being productive and court, like being transparent. Fast forward, the next time we were, we went out to go hire someone, there was a black woman in the process and someone on the team was like, 
Okay, well, now they're going to be out getting their hair braided and stuff like that. Right. And so we had to quickly put that in check. Um, But it but like, yeah, we all know for those of you that get our hair braided, it's going to take eight, 10 hours. You're going to be in the chair. And while I would love to sit in a chair and kiki with my stylist on a weekend, sometimes that's just not possible. And so, you know, for me as a leader, though, at this level, my team knows when when they see a hair appointment on the calendar that, yes, I'm going to still take meetings. My camera will be off or on. Sometimes I'll be in a meeting with my CEO. My CEO literally waves at my hairstylist now, sees me getting my hair braided, right? I choose to do that as a leader to incorporate because the more that we see folks that see that and we can normalize that behavior, we can make it a part of just, hey, that's just what it is. Now, I do have boundaries that I'm not going to take an external investor call in my stylist seat, but my team knows that and I can still be productive. And so what does inclusion look like in the workplace when we are, again, allowing folks to come in, bring their whole selves? And what does that mean? And that's where companies need to focus. And again, going back to Representative Tyler's point is like the cultural competency of what that means across not only um, Black professionals, Black culture, Black women, but all of the different, you know, the wide range and the beautiful fabric of people and cultures that we have within our organizations. And Tar, can I add to that too? Um, you bring up a really good point um, and that, you know, the diversity, equity and inclusion aspect of this conversation is something that companies can be, you know, focused on. But one thing that we learn, uh, particularly with bigger institutions that have way more willpower to be able to potentially discriminate is that you're up against a giant. Um, when you're speaking out and trying to address an issue, if it, it may feel like a lot just generally speaking up. So we want to make sure that these companies know that diversity, equity, and inclusion is one thing, but we're going to make sure that we hold you accountable to the diversity, equity, inclusion, unless the wheelhouse just doesn't turn. Because if you're just taking complaints and saying you're going to do something about it, but not actually delivering results to the folks that experience an uncomfortable workplace on your watch, then that is where the, the legal comes into play and we, where we have a big problem. And so accountability is really big to that as well. Thank you for that. And and so when we jump to the legal part of this, uh, Deidre, I'm going to throw it back to you. Now, the act requires that the MCAD adopt rules, regulations, formulate policies, make recommendations. That is a long list for an agency that has a lot to do. So, what what do you think um, your role looks like going forward and, and what resources are required to do that? So this is um, what a lot of us in government call, um, you know, respectfully unfunded mandates. You know, the MCAD, I, I recently had, um, we engaged in a project here called the MCAD Footprint in the General Laws. And it's really amazing um, if you look at the entire scope of how the MCAD has been put into the General Laws, really what is expected of the agency. Um, and, you know, I I think historically the MCAD has not been given the resources that match the expectations. Um, with this in particular, um, you know, it's a very permissive language. It can be regulations. It can be policies. Um, it can it puts it in our court in terms of you know as necessary. 
Um, it's part of a bigger picture, how the MCAD is going to look at overhauling its regulations. We have a number of chapters that are sorely in need of overhaul. Um, we are working on our guidelines. We are very mindful of this language in the Crown Act as applied to the guidelines that we're currently working on. And we very much hope to um, incorporate some degree of guidance when it comes to these two new definitions. But um, you know, my larger point is that it is part of a bigger picture, the the regulatory um, imperative that's that's put on the MCAD. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, I am going to open it up for questions while we still have Representative Tyler with us. Um, so we have a few questions in here. The first question is, um, can someone in Atlanta, Georgia get protection? Well, I think it just went to answer. Okay. <laughs> Can someone in Atlanta, Georgia get protection by the Crown Act? And if not now, any idea of when uh, or what can be done to get protections there? So I think this is best answered by you, Patricia. Yeah, I can hop in there. Um, so speaking in Atlanta, Georgia specifically, or the state of Georgia, um, the state has not passed Crown Act legislation. There has been legislation that has been filed. However, there are city, there are local jurisdictions that have passed similar acts to the Crown Act. So East Point, um, South Fulton, and I believe Stockbridge and Clayton County have all passed um, acts similar to the Crown Act um, that we've been discussing in Massachusetts. I would encourage everyone to look at NAACPLDF.org slash um, Crown Act. And we've been tracking legislation around the country. If you're curious about a jurisdiction that's not in Massachusetts, um, we've been tracking a lot of that. Um, and if not, the second part of your um, question is, you know, what can be done? What's the protection? And as I discussed earlier, a lot of the, um, the litigation that we have been pursuing at LDF is based on federal law in the Constitution, which protects every American citizen. So although there might not be a Crown Act or Crown Act legislation passed in your specific state or locality, everyone is protected under the federal Constitution and federal law um, against discrimination based on race or natural origin or religion. Um, and so that is what leads our litigation to show that how someone wears their hair may be culturally significant, may be um, religiously significant. And if someone discriminates on the basis basis of their hair type, texture, style, um, it is um, an equivalent to discrimination based on race or color, um, natural origin or religion. Uh, Tara, also building on what Representative Tyler said about, you know, lobbying to your elected officials, um, this is also where representation at the executive level really matters. We see a lot of companies that have women on their, you know, in their leadership teams. When we had the travel ban that passed under the previous administration, we saw a lot of immigrants that were executives, like their companies got behind things. If you don't have a black woman on your executive team and we we know that that is a population that is missing, highlighting it to your company. If you feel like your company is an organization that would support this and wants to get behind this, educate and inform your leaders to say, hey, how can we take a stand, sign a petition? 
And so the thing is, is that we need more black women in these executive roles so that they can, you know, get their organizations and their companies to take a stand and show support. But you all can come together because in this environment, right, where um, employees really can drive that change within their organization, education can be key. And that's where we talk about, you know, we don't need allies in our companies right now. We need advocates. And so going to your senior leaders and being advocates on behalf of this um, you for black women and also just beyond can go a long way as well to get that lobbying to your elected officials, but from your company. Absolutely. We need advocates. Um, let's see the next question that we have here. Um, and anyone is feel free to take it. Maybe representative Tyler, since you only have a few more minutes, maybe you could take this one. But um, this question is, how do you recommend sharing the new law with employees in your workplace? And would you recommend including the new law in the employee manual? Yes, absolutely. What we don't want to be is reactive to a situation. You want to be as preventative and proactive as you can possibly be. And so wherever we can just create, um, you know, again, culturally competent educational content where we can share with employers by the masses. I mean, we have technology, it can be an email, it can be a TikTok, it can be many different things that are a little bit more accessible and more tangible for, you know, companies at large to come across. And um, we should do whatever we can to be able to educate folks. Um, it doesn't really have to be long drawn out in the employee law book um, posted on the lunchroom and things like that. But um, something that we can do to, again, make it a little bit more uh, futuristic as well. Again, it's a it's a it's new day and age and folks aren't reading the employee uh, manual or handbook when they get a job, they're just starting and going with it. But whatever we can do to kind of make this front and center, um, we need to do what we can and be able to make that happen. And, and speaking as a previous chief people officer in organizations, I can tell you that employees, we, we have to go beyond just like sharing what the law says, right? We have to really break this down and common, very straightforward language. Like, here's what it says, but this is what it means. Like, FAQs, does it mean that I could touch someone's hair? No. Does it mean that I can do all these things? No. Does it mean that, right? Like what are some real applicable examples in the workplace to really bring that language to life and to help hold people accountable as well, right? When we can draw the line in the sand and it's very clear, when we have that clarity, it's easier for us to hold people accountable on what they can and cannot do within our organizations. Thank you. And I'm going to ask this question. Um, so the anonymous attendee, am I correct that the Crown Act has pre, well, okay, it keeps moving. Am I correct that the Crown Act was created to address specifically women of color, primarily black women? I think, yeah, I'm, well, I'm not sure. I didn't see Maureen's comment, but um, so uh, Representative Tyler, uh, Deirdre, if you could answer this question. I think they're asking, yeah. essentially, is does this just apply to Black women, essentially, so, so or women of this, color? This initiative was launch pad off the backs of two young Black women, as we heard um, about the twin sisters out in Malden. However, um, anyone that wears their hair, other, you know, in any different any style, anywhere, wherever, um, is protected under this um, umbrella of the Crown Act. Yeah, Tara, I would just echo that and add that um, 
you know, again, the MCAD looks at evidence of discrimination with respect to all the protected classes in a very broad sense. Um, so, for example, you know, we have gender discrimination cases where there's sex stereotyping and there's clear evidence that, you know, um, company actions based on women's appearance is a basis for gender discrimination. So all that's to say that, you know, um, there's from an anti-discrimination law in the Commonwealth perspective, um, hair can be an issue in a lot of cases, and it's not precluded just because we've added this definition of race to the general laws. However, to um, Tyler's point, um, the definition does not give special protections to one race over another. Um, it, it mentions different types of hairstyles that are often going to apply to persons of color, but is not exclusionary in any way, shape, or form. Those are examples of hairstyles that um, will be taken into account when you're looking at the definition of race. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump to this question um, from an attendee that says, um, with workplaces being remote, how would this apply if the workplace was in another state, but the employee is in Massachusetts? Can the Massachusetts Crown Act apply? So I guess yeah. Deirdre, Representative Tyler. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so um, Massachusetts employees are protected by Massachusetts state laws. And the jurisdictional trigger in Chapter 151B, uh, generally speaking, is six employees or more. Representative Rep. Tyler, do you have anything to add to that? Or She's an expert here in the legal field, so I'm going to definitely agree with that. Okay. Um, and we have another uh, technical question. Um, one attendee is asking whether Chapter 151B is creating a new protective class with the definition. No, it is not. And in fact, that is the, the major change that was made in the different iterations of the law. So there were a number of bills two sessions ago um, and last session that um, put a natural and protective hairstyle as a standalone protected class into 151B, into um, state police statute, into a hate crime statute, into a number of statutes. It created um, natural and protective hairstyle as like its own standalone protected class. And what the Crown Act as enacted did is it flipped the script. It didn't create a standalone protected class. It created a definition of race and a definition of protective hairstyle. So no, there is not a new protected class. All right. And then another question is, um, apologize. Does the Crown Act cover hair accessories such as an Afro pick. So I, I, it's okay. I would like to answer that because I, I really, I mean, if, if it's not obvious, I'm trying to underscore this point that the MCAD has historically looked at a broad range of evidence in terms of discrimination claims. Um, and I was actually looking, trying to find some good cases yesterday. And, you know, one case that I found talked about, it was, it was analyzing a race discrimination um, case where 
the the race um, discrimination, the allegations was that um, the complainant was discriminated against on the basis of being Native American. And the hearing officer was talked about, quote unquote, indicia of race in terms of, you know, was the discriminator understanding that she was of a particular race, et cetera. So I like that that phrase, indicia of race, and that can encompass a lot of different things. And that is a good way to capture, you know, how the MCA has looked at race and other discrimination claims. Um, so you can imagine different factual scenarios where um, if an Afro pick were in the workplace and, you know, a supervisor or an employee um, in, in, engaged in certain behaviors with respect to that uh, home, then that could be, you know, that could underpin allegations of race discrimination for sure. And that, that's a very difficult, um, you know, issue topic, um, hair accessories, because sometimes a hair accessory can also be a head wrap which again could be um, tied to your culture and it, it, it may it may not necessarily be considered an accessory. It may be a protective style for the day or whatever it is. And so that that area gets very gray very quickly. And so that's the reason why we really like to appreciate the case by case uh, basis on this because every case literally when it comes to your hair is a, is a, is a different unique case. Uh, Tara, I'd like to make a comment on Andrea Kramer's, um, the, the comment that she left, um, which thank you for sharing that. Andrea, I don't know how you personally identify, but I just want to share because I, I feel very strongly about this. When I work with clients in my consulting company doing DEI work, I always stress that I do this work as a practitioner and that I'm a professional and this is my job. I do not do this work as a Black woman. And I always encourage people um, when an organization comes of like, I think that we have to understand that like we don't have to carry this load and do this work and do that burden and that it is absolutely okay when organizations may come and ask questions to you if you do identify in a way that they may feel like you have the answer or you're supposed to educate to say, thank you for asking that question and that's really great and it would be, and, and the company should invest to go work with a professional, go seek their legal counsel, but to go actually do the work themselves to do that. And I only highlight that because um, uh, because there are times where um, like in my new role where it has nothing to do with DE and I and people, I don't do that work. Uh, that's not my job as a black woman in the organization. And I think it's really important for for companies to do the work and to make that investment on their own and to not put it on their employees, particularly their underrepresented employees. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and thank you, Representative Tyler. Uh, she had to run, so thank you so much for joining us. So we are we are starting to wrap up, um, and I think we've made it through the majority of our questions. I want to get. Can we? Oh. Uh, there's one question there. I think is really great. There's a last question there. Sure. Yeah, go. Ahead. Which one? Let me see. It says, despite the success of the Crown Act and its passage in Massachusetts, do you panelists personally feel pressured to wear your hair in certain styles because of the work that you do? I, I love that question. I'm actually also interested to hear um, your all's answer. For me personally, I, I no longer feel that way, but I can acknowledge that I did feel that when I was in the military. I did feel that when I was working on Wall Street. And it took me about a year into working at tech. Um 
for me to feel comfortable. And that is because I saw other professional senior women wearing their hair that way. And I think that had that not happened, I would not feel comfortable. But now I literally go out of my way. And after COVID, I mean, I go in between my braids <laughs> and my faux locks because I just don't know if I'm just, it, I don't have time. So. I came back on for this one. I do have to run, but I came back on just so I can answer this. But really quickly, um, you know, I never, never really felt that way. I feel like if you, you know, are not showing up as your authentic self, then what's the purpose of showing up? So I want to encourage everyone on this call to continue to show up as your authentic self, particularly the way you wear your hair, because, you know, you're your 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 production and what you do for work is definitely going to be affected by you not feeling authentic. And so with that, I would like to say, as you go up in a leadership um, ladder and you kind of look at different companies and what they're doing and who's on their leadership boards, you'll see, you know, uh, a very small amount of people of color and just diverse backgrounds in general on those leadership boards. And so when there is someone on there that may want to wear their hair in a natural style, whatever, make sure you go out your way to maybe compliment them or just uplift them because not only are you having, you know, or we're having issues in our, our spaces, imagine how more difficult it is for those folks in those very um, unique situations to be the only them and then to be wanting to wear their hair in a natural style. And so definitely make sure if, if I were to say one takeaway from this before I run is to make sure we continue to uplift each other. And I want to um, wish you all a happy Valentine's Day and you all look amazing. So thank you again. Same to you, Representative Tyler. Thank you. Thank you. And Patricia? I don't know if I want to go after that. That that was <laughs> closing words. But I will say when I first started my legal career, I was very conscious of how I wore my hair. I usually straightened mm -hmm. my hair before I started a job. This is a very conservative profession, um, despite the leaps and bounds we've made in certain aspects of the law. And it's also, um, you know, Black women are less than 3% of the legal profession. So we are sorely underrepresented. Um, I had comments about my hair, um, my, my, my hair texture and all of that when I first started. Um, but similar to what Representative Tyler mentioned, um, I started just wanting to show up as myself, right? I'm a racial justice attorney. I, I, I fight for civil rights. And um, if I'm not comfortable presenting myself how I am, how can I do that for my clients um, in the communities that I serve? Um, and so for me, it was kind of just letting go and um, to the extent that I could really being true to myself so that I could then be true to my clients and represent um, their, their lives and their issues as best as I could. And also having the support from my colleagues. Um, I work in an organization um, that is led by a black woman with locks, right? That, that is not something that you see very often, but it is incredibly empowering to, to, to have that sort of um, imagery and support um, continuing through this work. And so um, it is, it, it can be tough. We are cognizant of of, um, you know, the uphill battle a lot of people face with, with truly accepting themselves and being comfortable in professional and educational um, spaces um, to their truest self. Um, and so if you are having difficulty with meeting that standard, that is okay. There are a lot of burdens put on people, particularly people of color and Black women, on meeting um, these, these sorts of stereotypes about professionalism. Um, but once you get there, um, it is a relief. It is empowering. And, and I encourage all of you um, to, to live to your truest self. Absolutely. Those answers are amazing. Um, I've also, you know, felt the pressures of, of wearing my hair a particular way. You know, I remember walking in as a one L to um, a welcome event at a firm. And this man came across the room and said, 
oh, that hair. And he put his hands in my hair that was bigger than it, it is right now. And that stuck with me throughout law school, you know, second guessing when I go into professional environments, you know, not wanting to draw attention to my hair. And so it is. it was very important as I started to practice to see other, you know, women in the law, Black women particularly, wearing their hair uh, naturally in braids, in locks, you know, afros, whatever. So, um, but I just want to thank all of you for your time, your, your thoughts today, your expertise. This has truly been a rich discussion. Thank you to everyone uh, that joined us this afternoon. And um, I think Noah has some final thoughts for us. Nothing really on my end, just huge thank you all so much. And thank you all for organizing putting this together and to our attendees as well. And I wish everyone a great afternoon. Bye everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Day. Nice to meet you all.